Greetings. This is Bashiri, and I'd like to welcome you to the 39th episode of the Love, Peace, and Confrontation podcast. Of course, I greet you in love, peace, and confrontation. Black man, I love you. Black woman, I love you. Black babies, I love you. What will we tell our sons? Let's get out here and be the light. Recognize that we are the solution, that we house the capacity, the wherewithal, the facility of mind to mitigate and to resolve and ultimately bring to cessation many of the issues that are pervasive in our communities. Let's go ahead and recognize that we are definitely the answer to every prayer that we have ever prayed and or articulated. And ultimately we are the gods that we seek. All religions be damned. If it does not serve you, you should not serve it. Let's go ahead and take full advantage of the energetic, inexhaustible ingenuity that's part and parcel to the melaninated mind and overall black experience. Black man, what up? Black woman, what up? Black babies, what's good? <sighs> so here we are in our 39th episode of the Love, Peace, and Confrontation podcast. And this will be our fourth installation in a series uh, that deals with reactionary culture. And uh, I had to revisit uh, this topic again, this subject matter again, because I truly believe and it is my conviction that a thorough understanding of what culture actually is and the function that it serves for our group is uh, integral to the liberation movement of black people here locally in America and abroad in a global sense. Um, and the first thing we really have to understand is that culture is a vehicle um, that is utilized by a specific group to bolster life chances and survival interests by perpetuating values that are going to be instrumental in the acquisition and the maintenance of the aforementioned survival interests and need. And so what culture does is it allows for the transmission of what has been acquired via history and previous experiences, often through trial and error um, by our predecessors and those who have come before us. And we benefit from um, the mistakes made in the past as we collectively learn to be more proficient, to be more sophisticated, to be more effective in the ways that are necessary for the maintenance and the survival of the collective and the group. So culture in that regard um, carries with it an adaptive quality uh, an intrinsic value that corresponds directly to the evolutionary interests of the group. And it uses socializing vehicles and socializing modalities and socializing methodologies that inculcate in our young and normalize for them in their minds, in their consciousness, in their internal constitutions as to what is necessary to perpetuate the survival of the group. I keep reiterating survival in terms of its relationship to the culture that we cultivate and that we propagate and that we push forward through time 
through the education of our progeny, which is why it's so important that we be in control of the pedagogy of our offspring and of our children, and that we take significant interest in the caliber of information that they are being informed by, that they're being shaped by, that their minds are being cultivated by, because it is that very information that's gonna either mean for the continued perpetuation and survivability of the group at large. It is incumbent upon the adults in the community to have developed an awareness of how culture, consciousness, and concrete behavioral manifestations all in here and inform the wider interest of the maintenance of the integrity and the soundness of the group at large. It takes self-reflection it takes developing a critical analysis rooted upon and based in, I often say, teleological goals. That these goals serve our interest as we project them into the future on the basis of our understanding of the past, such that what we do with the now will be indicative of what needs to be accomplished with respect to what we ascertain as value for, again, the future perpetuation of the group that takes courage though to look at yourself to look at your history to look at behaviors to even reevaluate and ascertain whether a goal is laudable or whether a goal is actually an impediment. And I think for a lot of us, because we have been inculcated by alien values and an and alien ethic and system that has been designed to undermine our capacity and our ability to think and to see and to perceive and to judge and adjudicate clearly, we oftentimes get stuck right there betwixt and between um, reverence and revolution. I remember reading, um, I might not get there with you by uh, Michael Eric Dyson. And, uh, he made uh, a very poignant observation about our heroes in the community. Now, he's speaking about Martin Luther King and um, the reverence that he is due. But then also uh, in juxtaposition to the reverence of a true hero, he says, uh, and I got to paraphrase him, you... You got to look at the warts of a man as well. Because a true hero um, will present a teachable moment, even in the spaces where they house deficits. I paraphrased him. But I thought that was um, 
a very intriguing thought because it frees us up from uh, the caliber of hero worship and um, the incarceration of a cult personality ethic that says we can duplicate what worked and we can elect to discard what obviously was ineffective in our heroes. And that's beautiful. And it doesn't mean that we demonize and it doesn't mean that we denigrate. It doesn't mean that we disrespect those who have preceded us. You know, another great thinker I'm often in conversation with, and if you listen to me at all, uh, you already know that I thoroughly enjoy um, the musings and the thoughts of Dr. Amos Wilson, great hero of mine, and uh, a great light in my estimation to the community at large. And um, he says, every generation has a blind spot that the succeeding generation will be responsible for, for bringing clarity to. And so when we understand along the continuum of development with respect to our culture, with respect to our community, with respect to how we intend to survive oppressive circumstances, um, that we not too harshly judge the past. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't judge the past. Um, but I think in that judgment, we balance it with um, the caliber and a variety of temperance that we don't malign a preceding generation for blind spots um, that were or are because the past is always present part and parcel to the conditions with which they uh, were shaped by you know these historical circumstances so now it's kind of a segue into well what's the relationship between culture consciousness your worldview, your possibilities, your potentialities, these all correlate and inform um, and influence, respectively, each other. I was thinking earlier, like even when you, um, let's say you're in therapy, I go to therapy, you know, I talk to um, a person from time to time to kind of help me uh, navigate and manage some of my baggage along the life on the, along the journey called life, right? You know, what's a journey without baggage, right? And so, um, when I'm trying to gain insight uh, via the luggage, psychically, that I carry emotionally, you know, uh, uh, spiritually, I'm talking about the immaterial value or uh, constitution of a human being, you know? These thoughts that often become things. Um, it's very interesting that when you, when you journey in your memory of maybe an instance where, where uh, trauma may have occurred, there is, there is a quality of, of traveling back to a locality, meaning that that memory that you have um, was spawned in a concrete context and place and time. And that concrete context and place and time has been incarnated into your body and you're carrying um, you're carrying a location, right, inside of your body via your thoughts. Now, if you understand the, uh, again, how 
how your thoughts influence your body and how your body can influence the chemistry of your brain. And by virtue of that influence, your thoughts and your consciousness, your aptitude to see or not see. All right. Or your aptitude to um, be or not be. Because it's that profoundly um, informative, respectively, within that matrix of the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the mind and body continuum there. That in a very real way, when you consider that just from thinking, you can have, you can bring about physiological changes in your body. Right. And then just from uh, deciding to behave a certain way, you could you could bring about psychological changes in your psyche. You know what I mean? Um, Case in point. uh, Often people who are in the therapeutic space, they use a method of, well, when you start having certain kinds of thoughts that are depressive, say, in nature. If you smile, that physiological happening will trigger a neurological uh, response that's going to tell your brain or tell your consciousness or that aspect of you um, that is immaterial that we're experiencing happiness. And now we need to bring online all of the um uh, uh neurochemical um realities right that will facilitate an authentic experience of what we behaviorally initiated right and then you have the same again the same thing the, the reason why this is relevant to Uh, The development of culture and how culture informs consciousness and consciousness uh, creates reality and creates communities and vice versa. And communities create consciousness. You have this two way uh, feedback loop where one creates the other and the other is 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 also an outgrowth of that initial creation and vice versa. Is for our conversation is that we're dealing with. that phenomena within an oppressive context, within a context where uh, for the lion's share of our experiences here as an oppressed people, we have not been allowed to be in control of our environment. And if it is true that when you're dealing with certain kinds of trauma that you've internalized a locality Right. And it lingers on in your subconscious or in your mind. And every time you decide to engage the world through the lingering of that trauma. Or, or, or lens with which you engage the world. Well, then it is. It is through that very. Uh, deficit for lack of better terms that you are now shaped and it's gonna control how you move in the world how you perceive your life options with respect to spaces and places that you have internalized over time so that even when the sight of a traumatic event no longer exists. Let's say something happens in a home, but the home is demolished physically. Mentally, the home persists until we bring resolve and resolution to what occurred in that locality, which was physical, um, but through internalization becomes immaterial in your mind and you allow yourself to be controlled 
by external concrete conditions that again feedback loop shape your consciousness and then in turn your consciousness shapes your environment but that consciousness and that environment were already uh, malnourished you have a malnourished environment you develop a malnourished consciousness you develop behaviors that continues uh, to propagate a culture of malnourishment right a, a culture of a deficit a culture of having been made bereft a culture of of having um been deprived these are all social political um psychoeconomic dynamics that exist within an oppressed black culture so that we can perpetuate destabilization and bring online perpetually in our progeny and burgeoning um, human beings that we would bring into the world a programming that maintains power differentials that exist between the dominant society right euro americans and ourselves black americans right or as some people would say um africans in america depending on your convictions depending on your read of history you know and so what i'm speaking to when i when i articulate what it means for us to exist within a reactionary culture it's with those very dynamics that are just elucidated in tow that I make that articulation and statement that to the degree that there is an ongoing symbiotic relationship between our environment and our consciousness and internal constitutions and Again, our internal constitutions bearing upon our environment and the perpetuation of the caliber of culture that maintains the dominant society in control. Then to that extent, or to the degree that we are aware, those of us who are aware of those relationships, right? Sociopolitical, sociohistorical, psychosocial, psychohistorical, all of these words, you know what I'm saying? Um, that become concretized or incarnated in our bodies and as such behaviorally and what we pass on behaviorally by example and by image, you know, it becomes iterative in our children. My son, my oldest boy, he said something interesting to me. And now, you know, my wife uh, was relaying to me, you know, some kind of uh, defiant behavior he was exhibiting. He'll be four. And, uh, but he's very aware, you know, and he's very, very brilliant. And I'm not just saying that because he's my son. Like, I see it in him. You know what I mean? He's, he's deconstructing his surroundings and he's trying to make sense of what he's exposed to and what's uh, apropos. And, you know, um, what and, and, and what is taboo with respect to his context and his world. You know what I mean? And um, so he has this defiant moment and um, my wife is relaying it to me in front of him. And, uh, you know, and I'm listening and he says to me, because my wife walked him through an apology. He's like, yeah, I apologize and I'm sorry. But he says to me, he says, I need to be taught. He's very aware. He's like, OK, I need to be taught. And he said, Daddy, I'm glad I have you to teach me. And I know you're going to be such a good teacher. He's not even four yet. This is what he says to me. Because he's aware of, even in his young mind, that there has to be some supra-agency, right? 
i.e. mom and dad who's supposed to assist who's supposed to assist him in the flowering of his development and the shaping of his consciousness so that he becomes the best version and expression of his version of human being and it was so beautiful because then the feedback loop for me is my son is an extension of myself and there are some things that are unresolved in myself that through the gift of parenting my son he gets to learn how to be better and i'm being better i get to i get to become healed by helping him to manage aspects of myself in terms of defiance that he through no fault of his own inherited genetically so in teaching him i'm learning lessons about how i can be better you see you know what i mean so that um in a real way my son is the teacher and i'm the student you know and then at the same time, he's the student and I'm the teacher, you know, and we have to be careful in this instance to preserve the integrity of kindness so that the exchange between both myself and my son would be fruitful. Now, how does that apply to the culture and to the community? Well, it, it applies this way. In this sense that as soon as we are made aware consciously of where we are with respect to our experiences, traumatic experiences that have preceded us and that no doubt inform present manifestations of dysfunction, It is at that point that we become responsible for what we know. But prior to that, we can't be responsible for what we know on one hand, on one. And then two, when we don't know history, you know, I'm an advocate for history because history is always present. Um, when we don't know history and we got people who are interested in revisionist history with respect to the social, political, commercial, and economic outcomes that it would mean for them. Talking about industries based upon insecurity. Well, then we get into the internalization of... As if what we are manifesting began exclusively with us on an individual basis. That we're somehow pathological inherently. And we ignore the socio-political and historical antecedents that have um, cultivated circumstances that leaves the wider community predilected to being morally hobbled. Huh? Or should I say economically and socially hobbled such that the circumstances of that reality for us as an oppressed people become so internalized that we react to those conditions in self-destructive kinds of ways and the feedback loop that's gonna benefit the dominant community is that they can now point at the ways that we have responded self-destructively and see this is why we oppress you. This is why we need to control you because you don't know how to control yourself. 
And that becomes very be uh, beneficial for them in terms of their ego defense mechanism of denial. Because then they don't have to look at themselves and how they abused power and how they use power to abuse people. Right? A people um, who were beautiful. And it was nothing pathological about their victims. But that's where propaganda and power and politics come into play. Because before I victimize you, I have to demonize you. I have to dehumanize you. You have to become completely other, right? First, I have to alienate you from myself. Then I create a culture through brute psychic and physical violence that I visit upon you, the targeted populace, um, such that now you become alienated from yourself. And as the late great Dr. Amos Wilson would suggest, now in the vacuum of that self-alienation, I can insert psychic propaganda Such that the self-talk or the new self, right? The vitiated and demonized self with whom you now identify as the authentic and true self is really my voice, is really my intent speaking in your mind collectively. And, that, and that's what I, I was having a conversation with my brother, um, Tilt. And, you know, I've had him on the podcast and I'll probably bring him on for an upcoming uh, episode where we'll probably deal with male-female relationships in the, in the black community in the context of, uh, you know, um, uh, gender and uh, um, uh, feminism and et cetera. We'll get into that. You know what I mean? Um, with respect to the black liberation movement overall. So I think I think that's a very important conversation that I like to have with him. And we will. But I was saying to both him and my wife at one point that we really have to reevaluate black culture as it is. Seeing as it is um, fundamentally a reactionary culture as we're responding to oppressive circumstances um, to navigate hostile spaces, there's going to be portions of what we affirm and what we have an affinity towards in terms of, well, this is black. There are going to be factions of, well, this is black. that are detrimental to our progress, right? Because it has been, again, um, it has been within the purview and the prerogative of those who have exercised power abusively against our group to maintain us via association and terms that define our spaces, not only our um, physical spaces in terms of where our community would be in proximity to the dominant community, but also our psychic in, um, spaces, our mental spaces. Um, these terms that we use through our slave language, you know what I mean? That shape the contours, again, of our consciousness in ways that will maintain uh, the integrity and the soundness of the current system. So that now we aid and abet in our own oppression on the basis of the value system that has been inculcated into our internal constitutions and our immaterial reality. And then we perpetuate by default. 
our own denigration because we have ascribed to alien virtues and alien values so that even when we behave, we commit violence against ourselves. Even when we obey and we conform, we vitiate ourselves very deeply. So they get it both ways through definition, um, through words, through designation, right? Um, by situating themselves as the arbiters of moral rectitude, right? And we capitulating to that authority of definition, um, could only mean for us a more pervasive incarceration because it then becomes an an incarceration, excuse me, of the soul, right? What does this mean? I mean, like, uh, when I get on here and I'm talking about you know, things that appertain to black liberation locally and abroad. You got to deal with the psychoeconomic dynamics that are at play, right? I hear a lot of people like from, you know, I'm talking about historically speaking, you know what I mean? Because for me, history is always present. But like from the civil rights movement, and even now, you know what I'm saying? Like where our leaders were wanting to make moral arguments. You know what I'm saying? About the wicked institutions that exist now. And even me just saying wicked institutions is a moral assessment. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm right in line with, you know, the tradition of trying to make um, a moral indictment, right? And that has its place. But see, morality from the perspective of those who define good and evil, Right? within the American enterprise and even global white supremacy, uh, morality is according to what's economically expedient. If it's going to provide industry, if it's going to bolster uh, our dominance in terms of the generation of capital, um, then it's moral, right? No matter if I have to undermine, misinform, uh, demonize, brutalize, rape, murder, lynch, dismember, Break up families, break truces, deceive, distort, lie. Those things we can wink at. If at the end of the day, we're economically viable. You know? The pain of the targeted populace is just the cost of doing business. And see, I bring that up the way that I did um, to really highlight the fact that you're not going to preach these people off of the acquisitional addiction. You're not going to preach them off of the avarice because y'all are talking two different languages. Y'all are talking from two different lanes. Y'all are on the same planet, but y'all occupy two different universes. 
Y'all are not the same. He's speaking from the perspective of a ruler, of a dominator, of a decimator, of a conqueror. We're speaking from the perspective of having been dominated, decimated, you know what I mean? Ruled, conquered. There are two very different moral imperatives at play within, excuse me, um, the moral matrix, as it were, in question. So you have conflictual moral um, convictions, right? So it's not enough to call him immoral. That ain't moving him. Right? That's not moving the system. <laughs> you know, they might be polite. They might apologize. They might say, oh, that's not what we intended to do. That's not what we meant. Uh, but your moralizing and your sermonizing is not going to convince them to abdicate, abdicate power. And that's, that's what's necessary for us to survive as a people is the acquisition and the development of power. But that does not occur unless we really understand the utility of culture and consciousness. Okay? Because that's that's the 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 nucleus you know what i mean um of power itself it's a realization you know what i mean it's a revelation of what relationships are you know that we are not our islands unto ourselves. You know, that we are deeply and, and, and cosmically connected. Us as a decimated and divided group. You know, been dealing with the concept of a nation a lot. Been having very important conversations, you know, with different minds about the utility of nation and village and etc you know what i mean um and and about the cohesion of community and um the important traction that that cohesion would mean for us um economically speaking you know and i'm not just talking about money as a medium you know because we have money in our communities. We do. We don't have an economy because we don't relate to the money. Or no, we don't relate to one another appropriately. Right? And that's where the power is at. When we can relate to one another, black people, hear me, appropriately, when we see value in one another, when we see ourselves as responsible for remedying our conditions, for controlling our neighborhoods, for educating our children, then the money that we do have will become a meaningful instrument from which we could birth a true economic structure and base. But you don't have an economy just because you have money. You have an open market just because you have money, which is why you, you, you allow other people from other groups to come into your neighborhood and to own the neighborhood. You just live here. You just paying a mortgage in your neighborhood or you just paying rent 
in your neighborhood, but you want to know who owns the neighborhood, the business sector that owns your neighborhood, you know, it's the money or the consolidated relationship or the organizing principle that can help make sense of scattered money that's controlling the neighborhood because the politician is going to listen to organized groups. Organized groups are going to pool their um, immaterial and material resources, and that's going to become a power of influence. Now we got power to influence policy. You know what I'm saying? Now we got power to control the conditions of communities. And we're going to control those conditions in the community that's going to be in alignment with our interests. Right? But when all black people are concerned with are the alien values of being able to wear somebody else's name on your feet or on your back or to pull on, put on pants or a belt or even undergarments that say Gucci or whatever else. And we associate being associated with white entrepreneurs and captains of industry as a status symbol and a badge of honor and an indication of power then we fully exhibit how poor in spirit we really are how broken in consciousness we really are right how bereft in, in immaterial wholeness we are when we become wholesale, non-thinking consumers who enrich other communities and underwrite the robbery of our own via undisciplined consumerism. And that all goes back to the one, a reactionary culture. It's not like it's a reflective culture. You know, when we get to really be proactive and think about where we want to go and what we want to create on the basis of what we've determined our values to our community. But because in a lot of times we're having a reactionary moment where, you know, we want to prove ourselves. Um, we want to be accepted by, this is more so along the lines of assimilation. You know, we want to be approved by, we want to be celebrated by, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, not understanding that <clears throat> that's not how the rest of the world is playing the game. Name of the game is self-acceptance. Name of the game is self-definition. Name of the game is self-determination. You know, name of the game is ownership, right? The name of the game is control. Control of yourself. Control of your human and um, immaterial resources. You know what I'm saying? Control of your soul, your mind, your suke, your consciousness. Uh, and understanding how you're going to employ symbols through words, through what we say. That's going to propel us forward um, as a group. And I'm talking about. The economy of personalities and all of that. Now, I got to stop here and I'll probably have to do another installment at another time. Um, dealing with even the economy of personalities with respect to reactionary culture and what it means for us to develop a mindset.
because mind is power. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's indicative of your ability to adjudicate again and to discern and to judge rightly what's necessary. And for those of us who know the responsibilities upon us to not only quote unquote preach, but to do, to get out here and um, show an incarnational expression of what we conceive, right? And what we perceive. And we do that, we do that through business. We do that through developing um, um, concrete manifestations that the community can see. And once they see, they perceive, and they're shaped by, and then we gain them. And we become what's necessary uh, for us to survive. Listen, it's not just about parsing out the problem. It's always about shining a light on members of your community who are doing an incredible work here locally in Hampton Roads. Hampton Roads is regional black chamber of commerce, black brand, blackbrand.biz. If you are industrious, endeavor to be industrious, entrepreneurial, endeavor to be entrepreneurial. You need to link yourself with a uh, nexus and a network of powerful, like-minded individuals who have your overall economic well-being, both in head and in heart. Black brand, blackbrand.biz, a 150-year economic plan exclusively in the making for black people. Um, signing off for love, peace, and confrontation. Um, I would encourage you to read widely, to read deeply, to converse with the luminaries in your community, to converse with yourself and ask yourself deep questions about where you want to be, where you want to go, how you're going to get there. You know what I mean? And not just uh, individually speaking, but how we're all going to get there together. You know what I mean? You want to get there fast. Uh, the old adage is you, you, you go alone. But if you if you want to go far, you got to go together. We need each other. Anyway, um, black man, I love you. Black woman, I love you. Black babies, I love you. What will we tell our sons? Let's get out here and be the light. And everybody, until next time, please be safe. Love, peace, confrontation. Take care.